early, 9.30. Look at our, look at our crowd, yeah. <laughs> I'm excited about this. I hope you're excited about it. Um, so j- just kind of an overview of our plan is that we, um, as a session, really have kind of just looked at the landscape of where we've been so far in Sunday school. Um, Sunday school began for us in January of 2022. So this is actually fairly new to our body, to our congregation as a whole. Um, in January, 2020, uh, January of 22, we, we did our first study in the Lord's Prayer. We looked at the scriptures. And, you know, my, my kind of pitch to the session was, hey, let's do something doctrinally while at the same time looking at Scripture itself. It's something that kind of weds those two ideas of we're in the Scriptures, but we're also looking at something that proclaims a theological truth. And so we looked at the Lord's Prayer that first semester. Um, the next semester we looked at, um, was it the Apostles' Creed? Or is that last semester? No, we did the Apostles' Creed. We looked through... A creed that we often say, I believe is the creed that we're saying this morning in our worship, and we just went line by line, and this is what we believe, and this is why we believe it. And very specifically, you know, the, the, the big week was, what, is, what do we say when we see the, say the Catholic Church, right? That's what we were all just waiting for. But hopefully that you, you got some flavor when we went to the Apostles' Creed, um, that we actually brought in a lot of the confession. The Westminster Confession of this, the Apostles' Creed is where we get the root of what we believe in our confession as a Reformed Church. Then last semester we went back and we did the big story of the Bible. We tried to wed how, with a theological framework, how do we read the Bible? And what I continually say, and what I hope this church will always say is we want our members to be good readers of the Bible. Because if we can't read the Bible well, we can't understand, one, what it says, but two, what God has done for us in Christ. And so last semester, we use this term very infrequently, last year what we tried to give was a reformed or a covenantal way of reading the Scriptures. And how from beginning to end, there... The scriptures tell one story of God's great redemption in Jesus Christ. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and in all the different genres, and all the different aspects, and all the different writings, everything is talking about that one story from a different perspective or a different aspect. Whether it's Genesis or Exodus, whether it's the Psalms or the Proverbs, whether it's the historical books or poetry, whether it's the Gospels, the Acts, Paul's letters, everything contributes to the one story of redemption of God saving his people in Jesus Christ. I say all of that and to also say this is the same story that the Westminster Confession of Faith tries to tell. From beginning of the confession to the very end of the confession, the Westminster Divines, and we're going to talk just a little, in just a little bit about what that actually means. The Westminster Divines, these men who were selected by the English Parliament to give a statement of faith of what the Church of England is supposed to believe, tried to tell this story in the form of 33 
article, the 33 chapters, known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. So in line with all of that, we have felt and we have prayed as a session, we, we think that studying the confession is the next step of the logical process of where we're going with Sunday school. We are focused on the Bible. But in Fayette County, we read the Bible in a very different way than a lot of churches read the Bible in this county. We read it through the lens of our confessions and our catechisms. And so that, that is kind of our aim. And so um, for the next, I think it's 41 weeks, counting this week, we're going to be going through the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's 33 chapters. Um, I think all the chapters that have, I think it was six paragraphs. If it has more than six paragraphs, we're going to split it into two different weeks, I think is how I did that. If I didn't do it exactly that way, I apologize now. Um, but so we are going to be, and this, by, by the way, this is a, if someone needs a copy of the confession, this is an extra copy that I have. Please come take it. If you want a, if you want a copy of the confession, please, please um, come take this one. Um, you can be nerdy and do your little tabs like this, even though those tabs really are pretty useless now. Um, I also wanted to point out this resource. This is a resource called Confessing the Faith, a Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is by Chad Van Dicthorn. Um, he is the nerd's nerd. He wrote his, um, I think it was 75,000 page dissertation on the minutes of the Westminster Confession, of, of the actual assembly itself. He has gone back and um, retranslated them and gave a historical context. And so um, he has written a very short book from his dissertation called Confessing the Faith. Um, everyone that's going to be, be up here teaching in Sunday school, I gave a copy of this. This is kind of our primary, secondary source of how to understand the confession. What, what's really great about this um, is that w you know we're going to be we're going to be reading the King James English or the Queen's English. Um, in each chapter, it gives us a modern version of the King James. English of our confession. This modern version, if we ever say the confession in our service, I'm actually copying and pasting it from this modern version. Um, so I I if you're interested in this, th this is what, what it is. It's called Confession of Faith by Chad Van Dicthorn. Um, if you want to come take a look at my copy, you're welcome to. This morning, my primary source is from um, Robert Lethem, who's a Scotsman. And he wrote a book on the Westminster Assembly, its historical and theological context. Um, so if you, if you want to know, um, I love resources. If you want to know the sources that I'm using this morning, this is where I'm getting most of this information from. All right. Before we dive in, let us pray. Father, we are so thankful as your people that you have revealed yourself to us. We would have no access to you if you did not condescend and open our eyes to see who you are and what you have done. Father, may this semester, may these two semesters of studying your confession 
be profitable for us. May it create in us a maturity in the faith. But Father, may it also lead us to the glorious praise of your name for what you have done for us in Christ. I thank you for these people who have an eager heart to learn, to learn about who you are and who you've created us to be. Be with us and bless us in our time. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so you should have, um, I, I have a handout in the back. I, I dropped it in the communion bowl or the communion cup bowl, um, because where else would you look for a document for Sunday school? Um, and I'm going to get to what I have on that piece of paper in, in a moment. Really, what I, what I gave, what I copy and pasted were my notes. Those, those, those are just copy and pasted from my notes from a historical context of both a, the continental, what's happening in the continent as far as confessions go, and also, uh, uh, ver- my summary of, you'll like this, um, I think the, the second part of that, the in England, is my summary of about 150 pages of this book. Th- th- those are just my notes of summary, and so we're going to get there. Um, but first, I kinda, going back to what I said earlier, is that the confession as a, it a whole, the first the chapters 1 through 33, of the confession were written to tell that one grand narrative of Scripture by Westminster divines. So what these are is the, these aren't necessarily just pastors. Um, these are people that Parliament hand chose to help them establish the belief of the Church of England. It was a governmental focus. Um, I don't really know how to say that, but it was the government choosing what the church should believe. Now, this is completely foreign to Americans, right? We are the opposite of what is going on um, in the early 1600s. They were selected to not actually write the document of the Westminster Confession, but their primary goal was actually to take the 39 articles, which would have been the doctrinal statement of the Church of England, which was an Episcopal church. Their priority was actually to take the 39 articles and to make sure that they aligned with what the Church of England was supposed to believe. And so the, the, the assembly relied heavily upon the theology of its day. And we're going we're to get into the, kind of the theological and historical backgrounds of England. But the, the assembly wasn't just some out of context, let's just decide, let's start from scratch and write what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about his word. They actually took sources and resources in their day and use them for the writing of this document. Specifically, nowhere, part, nowhere in Scripture does it talk about justification 
in such a way that we find the confession. In one single place. What the confession is trying to do is trying to synthesize the truth of what all the scriptures teach on such a topic like justification and putting it in a few short paragraphs what all of the scriptures specifically say. For instance, sometimes um, the confession uses justification as an umbrella talking about Christ's righteousness accredited to the believer. Right? This is what we get from Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 26. Christ's righteousness is accredited to those who have faith. But later on in the book of Romans, Paul actually talks about justification in the terms of forgiveness. That's actually how he talks about it in our passage this morning from Ephesians chapter 1. Through the beloved, we are forgiven our trespasses. These are two realms, these are two different aspects, these are two different pictures of what justification looks like throughout the scriptures, and they're trying to give us a synthetic summary of what the scriptures teach in its theology. And as I said last week, and I think Bill talked to me three times this week, all three times he gave this re-gave this quote that I said last week from R.C. Sproul, that we are all theologians. It's just whether we're good ones or we're bad ones. And then he did his (laughs) chuckle. And it's absolutely true. If you read the Bible, you have a theology. You have an understanding of who God is and what is true about him. Theology is the study of God. I try to talk to Joel, my 12-year-old, about theology. And I said, it's just like zoology. Zoology is the study and science of animals. Theology is the study and science of God. All of us, in some capacity, all, all of us, believe in God. It's whether we do it rightly or incorrectly. And so what the Westminster Confession does in each of its chapters is it tries to take these doctrinal truths synthesize them down to really almost and sometimes too short of paragraphs of what all of the Bible teaches on a specific doctrine. But it's not exhaustive. It doesn't hit all the topics. There's not just 33 topics of theology. But again, they're trying to tell this story of God's great redemption from beginning to end. It's one of the first confessions that specifically talk about and dedicate a chapter to the covenant of God. It is the first document to ever record a chapter on adoption and the doctrine of adoption. It only has one paragraph, but it's the first confession ever printed that deals with the doctrine of adoption. Now, we, we can think, hopefully we can think very quickly of passages that speak about our adoption in Christ. Ephesians 1, what we're going to talk about this morning, is one of them. Romans 8 is one of them. Galatians 4 is one of them. Adoption is a theologically rich doctrine throughout the scriptures, but no one had ever written it down and said, this is what we believe about adoption until we have the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
But we also have to um, understand Westminster for what, it, for what it was during the time that it was. Meaning, a lot of what Westminster actually writes out, we have expanded on in the last 300 years. And we can't say, well, I can't believe they didn't write that because some of our theology hadn't progressed in time and our understanding of a certain topic hadn't progressed until the Westminster Confession or other confessions like it were written. And what I love um, to tell Baptists or recovering Baptists, as we might have some in this room, um, is that the Baptist Confession is actually based on the Westminster Confession of Faith. They just change one chapter on baptism. But if you look at the, I think it's the London Confession of the Baptist Church or something like that, it's almost word for word the Westminster Confession of Faith. Just as if you take the Westminster Confession of Faith and take the 39 articles of the Church of England, some of, this chap some of the paragraphs are almost word for word taken from the 39 articles. So we all believe something about God. We all have a theology. It's just whether we have a good theology and a bad theology. And what we as a church, what we have as a denomination continually say is we believe the Westminster Confession of Faith is the best doc biblical doctrine in human history. As far as a creed and a confession, this is what we stand on. This, this, this is what I love about our denomination. If you want to know what we believe about a certain doctrine, pick up your Westminster Confession of Faith. You can absolutely call me. Let's set up coffee or an adult beverage, and we can talk about it. You would be the first, one of the first ones ever to talk about the Westminster Confession with me and ask to do that. But if you want to know, this is why we hand these out um, at our new members' classes. If you want to know what this church believes about theology, read the Confession of Faith. Read the catechisms, the shorter, the larger catechism. All right, so that's a brief overview kind of, of what the Confession is trying to do. Are there any questions? I know I wasn't that clear because I didn't follow my notes at all. Okay. Great. So let's let's get in, into the history um, of the confession. I have on there some just historical context. So um, the confession was um, written from 1643 to 1652. Are those the dates that I wrote down at the top? 53. Okay. So during that time, here here's what's going on the continent. So as you can all imagine. Um, Englishmen were very um, proud about just what's happening on the island um, of Great Britain. But here's what's going on kind of the same time um, that's going on in England. And, of course, October 31st, Halloween really is Reformation Day. Um, we have Luther nailing his 95 the theses on Wittenberg's castle church. This is what ignites the Reformation, Right. In 1536, we have the first Helvetic Confession. This is one of the first reformed confessions of the faith written out in a document. Then in Geneva, Calvin writes his own confession in 1536. Then we have a French Confession of Faith in 1559. 
The Scots, um, so in Scotland, they write a confession in 1560. Then we have the um, Belgic Confession um, in 1561. This is, if you haven't read the Belgic Confession, um, the Belgic Confession is probably one of the most pastoral confessions I've ever read. I read the Belgic Confession all the time. Um, it, it is very thorough. Their paragraphs are a lot longer, um, but the way that they deal with certain topics, I, I feel, is just very pastoral. Um, sometimes the Westminster Confession of Faith is pretty wooden. Then we have the Second Helvetic Confession. Then we have the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only hope in life and death? That I'm not my own, but I belong to Jesus Christ my Lord. That's the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. Then we have the Wittenberg Confession, which is uh, the, uh, the Lutheran um, Confession of Faith. And then we have the Canons of Dort um, in 1619. And I have on there which finalized the three forms of unity. So there is in the Reformed history something called Continental Reformed Theology and Presbyterian Reformed Theology. Presbyterianism um, as, as a whole adopts the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, and the shorter catechism as our binding document. There is another tradition based on the continent of Europe. They hold that the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort are their three doctrinal forms of what they believe. So if you ever hear of a... Um, of an RCA church, a reformed, RC, ref, no, it's not RCA. Is it RCA? There's lots of Presbyterians. And my Presbyterian family tree is not serving my mind correctly. But ARP, are they three forms of unity? Or are they? I think they're the, confet the Westminster, aren't they? We're in the PCA, the OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The ARP, I think, are all confessional. If you ever hear something with Dutch in it, they use the three forms of unity. They don't call their local meetings presbyters or presbyteries. They call them synods. So the a big difference in our theology is that they don't use the Westminster Confession of Faith as binding. They use the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. All of that's just, you know, for free. Um, but let's get to what is actually happening on the continent and what led up to the writing of the Confession of Faith. So let's go back um, uh, almost 150 years to Henry VIII. It was under Henry VIII that England severed its relationship with Rome for the first time. We all know the story, right? Henry wanted a son. Rome wouldn't um, give him an annulment from his wife, and so he broke off from the, from the Roman Catholic Church and said, I am going to be the supreme ruler, the supreme king over church and state. Remember this idea because th this is going to be very significant later in its history. The king reserved the right to visit, respond, reform, order, correct, restrain, and amend all errors, heresies, and enormities which by any manner, spiritually, authority, or jurisdiction, ought he lawfully reformed. 
he has final say over everything someone believes or does in England. Now, he, he did make the caveat under Christ. That's what the, the um, oh, where is it? The Act of Supremacy actually said in 1534. He is the final authority under Christ over all things religious and civil. During his reign, he appointed Thomas Cramner, who became Archbishop of Canterbury. And his aim was actually to align the Church of England with the Reformed churches of the continent. The continent was about 100 years, as you can see with how they're writing these confessions. They're about 100 years in front of the Church of England and the Reformed Church um, there than they were on the continent. So Thomas Cranmer had this big idea of, Let's base our theology, our Reformed theology, on what the continent is doing. And he wrote, in response to that, the 39 Articles, which is still used by the Episcopalian Church and the Church of England today. Now, how well they know that is a different question, but that, that is still their operating document of what they believe. Then after Henry died, Edward VI um, became king. He was a, he was a Protestant, um, but he became, a, became king of England at age nine. That just baffles me. When I was in high school and college and I read that, that really didn't mean a lot to me. Having a seven-year-old and a ten-year-old at home, this scares me to death. Henry VI became king at age nine, but he was aided by Edward Seymour, who shared Calvin's theology, and during his time, he appointed prominent theologians both at Cambridge and Oxford. Um, he appointed Martin Bucer to teach at Cambridge. If you don't know who, the name Martin Bucer, he was actually someone that Calvin went to and studied under when he fled France in his exile. He also appointed Pierre, um, it's French, I don't know, I don't know how you say that, um, Vermeil, or sorry, he's Italian, who was also studied in Strasbourg, appointed him to Oxford. And this, I, I don't know much, I don't know anything about anyone about him, but these two professors were put in um, positions of influence at Oxford and Cambridge, and for the next hundred years influenced the theology of all the preachers of England. And then we have Bloody Mary. She succeeded um, Edward, and the pendulum swung from a Protestant church um, to a full-fledged Roman Catholic church. Cramner had to flee the country. That's when, actually when he um, went and studied with Calvin. Um, and luckily, um, well, can I say luckily she died? In God's providence, she died. Um, and, but yet she left England in a lot of ter theological turmoil on what we believe, or what they believe. And her sister, Elizabeth I, who was a Protestant, you might think, oh, she's going to sw swing the pendulum all the way back and we're going to be great. That actually didn't happen. She did reinstate um, the Act of Supremacy that King Henry VIII had um, implemented. 
But her main focus was on unity of the Church of England. She still had the medieval church structure that relied heavily on the Roman Catholic Church structure to be influential on the Church of England. And it was during her reign in the 1570s and 80s that the Presbyterian Church movement actually had to go underground because they didn't want to conform to the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church or of the Church of England of that day. Then in 1595, although Elizabeth never officially accepted or allowed them to adopt this belief, there was kind of a resurgence in Reformed theology on the continent. And this is where we have the Lambeth Articles, also known as the Nine Articles. I'm not going to read those because I'm looking at my time. Um, But I I put those on there so that you could read them. This is this is a very brief statement of Reformed theology in England by English Parliament. If you read those nine articles, you'll be very pleased to find out that almost every single article is a paragraph in the Westminster Confession of Faith. All right, then Elizabeth died, and we have James I. And under James I, the crowns of England and Scotland were united for the first time in 1603. James was raised Presbyterian, but he wasn't a good Presbyterian. Um, He was, again, more interested um, in, in conformity and more interested in unity in the church. And this, I have a quote from something he said, I will make them, oh, sorry, I will make them conform, or else I will harry them out of the land, is what that's supposed to say, or, or else, due course, hang them. They're either going to believe what I tell them to believe, do what I tell them to do, or am I, I'm going to kick them out of the country, or I'm going to hang them. King James's biggest accomplishment was that he authorized a new translation of the Bible. King James Version. The Queen's English. And it was under him that we continued to have turmoil in the entire church. Although um, his archbishop, um, Greg Abbott, actually sent English Calvinists, English churchmen, to the Synod in Dort. And if you go back up, the Synod of Dort was a part of the last part of the three forms of unity. He actually sent um, representatives from England to the Synod of Dort. They were not voting members. They did not, were not allowed to debate at the Synod, but they were representative of England, and they were able to use the Synod of Dort when they came back to England to help shape the Westminster Confession of Faith. Then we have Charles I. Up until that time, the Church of England had been um, dominantly Calvinistic, reformed in its theology. Um, And Charles um, really put a hindrance to that. It wasn't necessarily him, but the two people he appointed 
Um, he appointed an Archbishop of York and the Archbishop of Canterbury, both who were against Reformed theology, both who tried to uphold the king's right to rule both church and state, and basically kicked out all Reformed theologians and pastors in the country, or stripped them of their ordination. We call that being defrocked. If you taught Reformed theology, you were defrocked of your ordination and became um, a judicial legalism. The Laudians is what they called them. I have, I have on here held the idea of the papacy because they wanted the, they, they hold, held two things highly. The apostolic, there we go, the apostolic succession of bishops. And they didn't like Calvin's doctrine of predestination. Man, my typing is terrible. Um, they didn't like the doctrine of predestination because they thought it undermined and sidelined um, the English, the Church of England's view of the sacraments. But it was during Charles's reign that England went into civil war. Charles tried to get Parliament to convene in the early 1640s because there were the, the, the Scots had rebelled against him because, of his, because his church was trying to impose episcopacy. And at this point, they were very Presbyterian. And so he needed Parliament again and tried to convene them to fund his wars, and they said that they would not. And because of that, one of the reasons for the English Civil War that began in um, 1672 was because Parliament and King Charles didn't agree upon why they should meet. Charles tried to overrule Parliament and tell them what they should do, and Parliament finally said no. And so this is what the Parliament did. In January 26th of 1643, they abolished the Church of England. No religious turmoil was happening for the first 150 years before the Confession, right? Thank you for laughing, whoever laughed. That was a joke. This is the context, the historical and theological context, leading up to 1943, or 1643, or when the Westminster divines were called to write the Westminster Confession of Faith. Their primary task, the first task that they were given, was to look at the 39 articles and state whether that is something the new Church of England should believe. It was in 1643 that Parliament appointed delegates, Englishmen from the entire, Engli from the entire country. So there was um, supposed to be two from every country in England, one from the country uh, from each country in Wales. There were supposed to be two representatives from Oxford, two representatives from Cambridge, ten representatives from the House of Lords, 
20 representatives from the House of Commons. The majority of these were Presbyterian, but most of them were dog not dogmatically Presbyterian. There were a number of Episcopals, and there were a number, number of Independents, Congregationalists is what we would call them today. And then three of the delegates were actually um, Reformed French pastors who held positions in England. But Parliament gave the, the assembly zero authoritative power. They were not a court of the church. They were told what to discuss by Parliament. If they had discussions that they could not resolve, they had to take it to Parliament. They were unable to tell anybody in England what they were talking about. They actually um, imprisoned somebody um, in, the in the Tower Castle because he began to tell others what they were discussing at the assembly. And then part of the deal with Scotland, because Scotland helped England overcome Charles I, Scotland was able to send um, a solemn league of covenanters. These were members of the Scottish church that were sent to London, yet these covenanters were not members and could not vote at the assembly, but they could engage in discussion upon the, the means of doctrine. Parliament's goal for calling the assembly was to unify the Church of England, the Church of Scotland, and the Church of Ireland with one confession as the belief of the entire continent or of their entire country. And here's what's ironic. The Westminster Confession faith was never used in that way in England's history. It would later be adopted by the, the, the Church of Scotland, the Presbyterian Church, and then it would come to the Americas, and after a few um, updates, a few um, redactions, um, it was, has been used by the Presbyterian Church and Reformed Churches in the United States. But as a document itself, it never served the historical purpose it was meant to serve as being the creed and confession of the Church of England. And so we have a confession that is thoroughly reformed. It's Calvinistic in its scope of theology, or Augustinian, as some would say. But it was never used as the foundation of the Church of England for its theology. But yet it has a rich, rich historical flavor of the church in England for the 150 years leading up to its creation. The assembly met during the Civil War in England. They continued to meet when Charles, King Charles was imprisoned and executed by his own government. After the assembly met, Within the, ne the next decade, both the larger and shorter catechisms were created. The shorter catechism was um, originally written for the church to learn. The larger catechism was primarily for pastors to learn. It was how they trained pastors. 
But again, it never became an official document for the Church of England. Looking at the time, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna stop there before I start a new topic. So there's a rich, rich history in the confession that we have in the church in our church this morning. To think that a hundred and is it 140? 120 people could come in a single room over almost a decade and come out with something that they were unified on and what they believed that scriptures taught really amazes. I don't think we could get 120 people anywhere to agree upon anything of such importance today. Maybe you could prove me wrong. I hope that you could prove me wrong, but I doubt we could. Yep, that's all that I have. Do you guys, wh what questions do you have? That, that was like drinking from a fire hose, I'm sorry. Bill should, be, yep, go ahead. Yep, yep, nope. That's a great question, David. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's a great question. So if I um, have any leanings or beliefs that are contrary to the confession or catechisms, I have to present them to the presbytery in writing, and they actually vote on whether that is an exception that I can take. Um, so we have um, three levels of, um, it's not a disagreement, um, of exception that we can take. Uh, an exception without source, meaning that um, it, it's more of an exception with the language of the confession, but it doesn't actually have anything to do with doctrine. Um, there's an exception um, that isn't, um, oh, my BCO rules of operation aren't coming to my mind, and I should be because this is the committee that I'm a chair of. <laughs> um, um, but it's basically an exception that is in difference with what the confession is saying, but it doesn't go to the, the heart of the gospel. It's not something that is against the gospel, or we rule it out of line that it is out of accord with the system of doctrine in the gospel. Um, and if the third one happens, um, we will fail um, the ordinand or license it from the process and not let them proceed. So I had to present in writing. I had two differences um, with the confession. I had to present those two writing, in writing to the presbytery. When I went to the floor for examination, which means I stood in front of all the pastors and all the elders of the church, they read those exceptions off, and then I had to answer anyone's questions about those exceptions. I can, I can give them to you if you want. I'm not going to talk about them right now. Yep. When we when we nominate and elect um, elders and deacons, they also have to read the confession and submit their differences with the confession. So typically, well maybe do I have time? I don't have time. Um, there are typically two or three that people take. Those are the three that I took. Um, 
but um, they're not anything really worth talking about, I don't think. But that's why I took an exception to them. It's really the use of images, understanding of the Sabbath. Um, and um, so, yeah, there's lots of difference there. But our denomination also has position papers on what views ministers can hold and be ordained in our denomination. Great. Anything else? Great. That's it. If you have any questions, let me know.